0: morning church. Need you open your bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, please. Proverbs chapter 3. And if you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of what we're calling the return challenge, which has already been uh, addressed. It is the return challenge for us is an opportunity that we see. The reason we have doors on our stage is because we believe that God has provided opportunities for us to walk through some doors, to do some amazing things. Some of those doors lead us out into the world and some of those doors lead us back into the church. And there are opportunities for us to grow together and become uh, one, be united around the opportunities that God gives us every day. If you haven't received a return booklet, uh, those are available out in the foyer, and we'd encourage you to have one of those, to read through it. There's a lot of relevant information. The challenge in front of us are six opportunities, or six doors that we want to process and walk through. Uh, It's planning a new church in South Joplin. You'll hear more about that uh, at the conclusion of our service this morning. Very excited about our announcement today. It's an opportunity to increase our youth space, specifically for 5th, 6th, and 7th and 8th grades, uh, as we have an abundance of students, and God's blessing us in those young lives, to be able to provide a better space for their learning, their encouragement, their celebrations together. Uh, There's things around here that we want to be able to do to increase our effectiveness to add some additional discipleship staff and some key positions, to be able to fix things around the building, to pay off our debt. There's some amazing opportunities for us, and we're encouraging our church to have a conversation in their home about what they would be willing to sacrifice so that the return challenge can be successful and we can take advantage of what God's giving us. You see, why the return challenge? It's simple, to build our faith. One of the obligations of being together on Sunday morning is not just to teach, But to encourage people to trust God more and to live more fully into his plan. And the second reason we're doing this is because we're here to help other people return to Jesus. Would you agree? It's not about the local church. It's about what the church does in the local community. Inviting people to return to Christ while we wait for him to return for us. So what is your part of the return challenge? Uh, We ask you to take a booklet and to read it. It won't take you long. And I think there's a lot of good information in there. We want to encourage you to be here the next two weeks, and we want to encourage every family to participate, to have a discussion and a conversation, and to make a choice about their level of commitment to what we're trying to do and to uh, encourage us in that. You see, in the past few weeks, we've been looking at this return. In week one, we went to John chapter 21, where Jesus confronted Peter on the beach and asked him the core question to all disciples, do you love me? And Peter's answer was, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus' response is, if you love me, you will serve others. That's the first thing we learned in the return, that when we're allowed to return back to Jesus, there's an expectation of service on every one of us. It's an expectation that's clear. It's not going to change, that Jesus says, I'm going to let you return to me. Now I need to have you return your gifts, your time, your talent for something bigger than yourself. Last week in week two, we looked at Matthew chapter 28. It's called the Great Commission. And we learned there that we go by his authority and his promised presence is what gets us there. It's what provides our success. That Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. And now you go in my name. And when you come back and you bring back your return, he said, I'll be there. I'll never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. And that's our promise. So the reason that what we're learning about this word return is, we return to God, we return our lives to him, and he will bring a phenomenal return from it. And it'll be in the lives of saved people, lost people who are now found. I was doing some research recently, and uh, they said the Christian counselors decided that the two most commonly asked questions of people, of their pastors, are these two questions. How can I know God's will for my life? And how can I find happiness and fulfillment? I want you to look at those two questions on the screen. I think it's a question we should wake up every day asking, don't you? I don't mean that because I wrote that in there, but I think that's a fair question to wake up. Put that next to your alarm clock. Instead of waking up going, what's the weather and what time is it? Ask yourself this question. How can I know God's will and how can I both be fulfilled in my life? And I want to answer both of those questions with one word. Trust. You'll find out the answer to those questions when you find out what you trust. Who you trust and why you trust them. You see, it's a simple word, but it's a profound word. It's a conditional word. Trust is based on me participating and the thing that I trust participating back. That's why trusting the things of the world is a dangerous way to live your life because you can place your trust in the world, but is the world trustworthy? Our finances and health and business and success are those things guaranteed to be faithful? My suggestion this morning is no. Listen to Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 10. And as we read through it, notice the pronouns. Notice who's doing what, and what does that teach us? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with, from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new, vine, or new wine. Have you noticed that trust is conditional? Well, let's just listen to what we learned. If we acknowledge God, if we place God first, he will straighten our path. In fact, the word for path there doesn't mean that your specific moment in life, but he will smooth the journey he will take you on. He doesn't promise to do what you want Him to do. He promises to do what you need Him to do. If we are humble and lean on God, He will refresh our existence. If we respect God's wisdom, He will bless our efforts. If we honor God with our wealth, He will bless us generously. I just want you to notice, if you write in your Bibles or you're taking notes in your return booklet, I want you to to remember this point. If we will react with trust, God will prove to be faithful. But God will not prove to be faithful if we don't supply the trust first. It's a mathematical equation, it's a conditioned on God's covenant promise to us. He will be faithful when we step out in trust. Peter walked on water because he knew Jesus was out there with him. And when he forgot that Jesus was with him, he got wet. Trust is always conditional. When we turn ourselves completely over to the Lord, then we will see what he has in store for us. God's will is discovered by knowing God's word, and lasting fulfillment is found in the joy of obedience. So when you wake up tomorrow morning asking yourself the question, what is the will of God? Look into the word of God. And when you ask, how do I become fulfilled in life? Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's the promise of all scripture. So how do we develop this life of trust? So we're going to talk about today. We have just completed, I know you're so tired of me saying this, but we've just completed 86 weeks of studying the teachings of Jesus. What are we to do with that? Understand it better? No. Trust it. We are called to do nothing less than to give our entire lives in belief that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, and then when He returns, what a day that will be. So, how do I develop a life of trust? I seek the truth in relationship with God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in an everlasting way. Notice that the psalmist seems to believe this crazy notion that God knows more about how to live this life than we do. The psalmist is telling us that if you want to understand where you're to go, what you're to become, and how you're to live, only God has that answer. So the first point this morning is only God knows everything. Now, I'm only going to say this this hour because he's not here. I have a nine-year-old who thinks he knows everything, but I think that's genetics. He comes by that easily, just like his old man. But only God knows everything. And yesterday, Braden and I were having a wonderful conversation about the fact that the answer, I don't know, is legitimately okay in most circumstances. And I told him it took me forever to learn that it's okay to go, you know what, I just don't know. But I know a God who does, every single time. You see, in First Chronicles 28, King David wrote, for the Lord searches every heart and he understands every motive behind the thoughts. The Bible gives you permission to ask God this question, why am I acting this way? Have you ever had a moment yet? I know if you're over 12, you have. Where you had a moment in your life where someone said, what were you thinking? And your honest to God answer was, I wasn't. I don't know why I did this. Ask God why you're like the way you are, and God will give you an answer. It's not always pleasant. Sometimes the mirror shows blemishes, but it's always accurate. And only God can lead me perfectly. This is the next point I want us to know from trusting the Lord. Only God knows everything, and only God can give you wisdom. The psalmist says, see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. For those of us who have tried to live our lives so perfectly that no one's ever disappointed in us, how's that going? So we say to the Lord, why do I act this way? Help me not to be me. I want to be better than I am. You see, the psalmist asked God to protect him. He says, lead me where I need to go. Show me the everlasting way. Trust in the Lord is resigning your control and living under his. So we, treat, we seek the truth. If you want to live by trust, you have to seek the truth in a relationship with God. Now, I, I want to be really clear here. I don't have a lot of time this morning, but I want to be very specific. Doing a Bible study is not the same as obeying the Lord. But I don't know that you can obey the Lord if you're not in the word. There takes a faith element of walking off the page and walking with the truth and letting the truth guide you. For many of us, we're stuck in our spiritual walk because we know what the Bible says and we believe it's right, but we don't want to respond to it personally. And that's a very dangerous game. Christians with head knowledge, without heart faith, are very dangerous. And I'm, and I'm leading you to believe and not very spiritual. So we seek the truth in our relationship with God and we trust in God's faithfulness is the second thing. If we believe he knows everything and only he can lead us, then we have to trust that he's faithful. Psalm 27, one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? These are poignant questions. I don't know that they're rhetorical. I think they're fair questions. If the Lord is the light in my salvation, then I won't fear because I know he's able. He'll be with me forever. But when we fear, there's a question being drawn in all of our hearts. Where have we placed our trust? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This goes back to the proverb, the third proverb. Lean not on your own understanding, and he will make your path straight. The Lord's general counsel, the Lord's ultimate truth, the Lord, being who he is, knows what's best for us even when it's uncomfortable. In a world that says to itself all the time, I don't want to live that way. I think that's old-fashioned. You're not trusting the wisdom of the Lord. You're trusting the wisdom of the age. Psalm 86, the psalmist writes, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is one of those preacher questions that I think you may roll your eyes at, but I want to ask you. Is that your God? Because most of the troubles and questions and fears of life are put aside when that's our God, a God who's compassionate and gracious. Well, let's do a little, let's have a little church in here this morning. Feel free to respond. Has your God been compassionate to you? Has he been gracious to you? I mean, in other words, the fact that you're still breathing his air is pretty unreasonable, right? Okay, he's gracious. Has he been slow to anger? Why hasn't he flicked you off his globe? He could, right? That big Monty Python hand coming out of heaven, and boom, you're gone. It's his world, and we haven't played by the rules. Is he abounding in love and faithfulness? So what can the world do to us with that kind of God leading us? Nothing. Read Romans chapter 8. Remember, do not be wise in your own eyes, the Proverbs say. Fear the Lord. The word fear is a word that means to respect and not challenge. It means to know that it's not about just not being punished. It's about being blessed. To fear the Lord is not to fear him because he'll blow us up. To fear the Lord is to know how good he's been to us and how much better he will be if we trust him because he's generous and faithful. You see, living out our trust is difficult. Jesus warned us of that. In Luke 12, 34, Jesus made this crystal clear, and this is a moment where some of you are going to stop listening. Here's why. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And right now, all of your hands went to your back pockets, guys, and the women start squeezing purses. Here he goes. We knew it was coming. I want to talk to you about treasures today, unashamed to talk to you about treasures if I stood on this stage and told you that I was going to talk about sexual immorality, a bunch of you would harumph and amen and say to me, go preacher, you tell them. But Jesus didn't talk nearly as much about that as he talked about how treasures ruin our hearts. So let me put you at ease. I'm not going to ask you to become poor. I'm not going to shame you for having. I'm going to tell you that where your treasure is, your heart will be. So why don't we make our treasures available to the king who should have our heart? It's really that simple. So is everybody relax now? Are we, are we good? I'm going to say it out loud. Everybody, hold on. Money. Okay. We made it. You see, as a pastor, it's, it's not about fundraising. It's about faith raising. And for some of us, we believe that God's true until he talks about our treasures. And then we think he's greedy. And he's really not wanting you to be poor. He wants you to be generous. And that's my God, a generous God. So how do we do this? We seek the truth in relationship with God, we trust in God's promises, and then we sacrifice trusting those promises. That's how you live a life of faith. You sacrifice on the promise. You get out of the boat. You walk on the water. You take your sack lunch, and you give it to an unnamed disciple, and that disciple feeds 5,000 people in a crowd, and then another little boy's got a sack lunch, and it feeds 4,000 people. You see, when we are generous because we trust the Lord, you'll give away even your last meal knowing you won't starve. This is how God works. Verses 9 and 10 of that same proverb. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new vine. I keep saying vine, wine. I need new contacts. Notice what he says here. From your very best, trust the Lord and see if he ever disappoints you. See if he ever abandons you or leaves you. John Maxwell, who does a lot of studying of of churches, he said something recently. He said there are three reasons people don't trust the Lord with their treasures. Three reasons. Here they are. Number one, some won't trust because they question God's faithfulness. I want you to think about that. The question comes down, is their Lord gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, loving, kind, and faithful? For some of us, we've never experienced that relationship with God, and I'm not shaming you, but I'm telling you, the only way you'll ever experience the truth of that is when you trust the truth of that. Some won't trust because they don't know what's expected. They don't listen, they don't pay attention, and no one's ever told them that God is worthy of all of our sacrifices. And some won't trust because they make no provision to give. And once again, I want to be really clear this morning. This is not about shame. If, if all we do is guilty to respond, those responses don't last For any period of time. We've all been children, right? Our moms got us to do things we didn't want to do because they used that wonderful pressure of guilt. And at the end of the day, as soon as they were out of the room, most of us stopped doing what they guilted us into doing. Now, you're going to say, why just my moms? Because my dad just smacked me. My mom guilted me. It was two different approaches completely. (laughs) So guilt doesn't motivate anybody long pole. It only motivates you to get the person off your back. We're not about God on our back today. We're about, can we respond to a trusting God who wants to do amazing things? Jeremiah 17, the prophet Jeremiah gives us a vision of two kinds of people. I want to give you the first one. We'll call it the self-reliant person. Thus says the Lord, "'Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes.' But will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. The person who trusts in the things of the world has nothing to fall back on when the things of the world diminish. But what about the God reliant person? Verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The person who trusts in the things of the Lord has found wisdom and that wisdom will sustain them the rest of their lives. One of the clearest measurements in all of faith, from the beginning in the garden all the way to the end of all time, one of the clearest measurements And all of Scripture, to the level of our faith, is our willingness to sacrifice. It's not always money, church. Sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's giving yourself to a neighbor and helping them do a project that you don't want to help them do, but you're giving them your time. Or for some of us here today, the greatest step of sacrifice you can give is to do what that young lady did this morning in front of all of us when she allowed herself to be given to Jesus Christ, buried in the waters of baptism to walk in a brand new existence. It's not just money. Some of your greatest treasures are the things that you don't let anybody touch. And God says, will you trust me with it? Now, that that term in the Bible is called a tithe. It's not a term that we use very often, but it's actually a sacrificial tenth is what it means. And any other definition of a tithe outside of a tenth is inaccurate. So we'll just say that and we'll move on. The concept of a tithe is to giving a, a good portion of your very best things To honor God because you believe he can use them better than you can. That's what we're talking about. So biblical reasons that every Christian should tithe their time, their treasures, and their talents. The reason why God asked for that. Well, first of all, a tithe is a historic response to God's ownership. It's a historic, uh, excuse me, a historic response to God's ownership. And I want to Make a point here because quite often, and I've already had conversations with people in the church, and one of the conversations I have with people, and I'm not right and they're not wrong, I just want to give you a historical, biblical perspective. There will be people that will say the tithe is Old Testament, it's not New Testament. I think I can disprove that point without being a smart aleck. I hope I can. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. God says to, I want you to listen to the conditional promise of God here. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Did you notice the reoccurring word in those two verses? Blessing. God is a blessing to us, and he wants us to be a blessing to who? To everybody else. That's part of the covenant. That's where faith exists. In the choice that God has been so good to me, why could I not sacrifice back for Him? Genesis 14 20. Abraham was blessed by God through this priest king named Melchizedek. And he says, And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemy into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. For those of you who wonder if the tithe is Old Testament and not considered in the New Testament, I'm going to tell you it was pre covenant testament so what did I just do? It's not Old Testament law to tithe. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all gave God a tithe before there was a law. It is a natural historic response to the goodness of God. You know this when you give presents. As much as we talk about human nature here, can I just kind of pull back the curtain and show the real us or maybe just the real me? When someone's been Incredibly generous to you, when it's time to buy them a present, are you thinking about how little you have to spend to still be considered a friend? No. When someone's been generous to you, what do you want to match that with? Generosity. It's human nature, it's the way we're wired. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob demonstrated for us that in the generosity of God, our response should be generous, not minimalist. And so we're challenged here. It wasn't an Old Testament law, it was a loving response. And then God asked them to give a tenth of all they had so that the work of his building the kingdom could take place. And none of that's changed. You see, our sacrifices are indicators of the value we put on anything. Some of us sacrifice for our family exorbitantly because we value them. Some of us sacrifice for opportunities to take our kids to different parts of the world so they can learn and see the beauty of God's creation because we value that. Some of us pour our time and our energy into our business so that we can be generous in other areas because we value that. Any sacrifice indicates what we value. Malachi chapter 3, this is in the Old Testament, it's a prophet who's talking to God's people about how they have forgotten the generosity of God. He says to them in Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Those are the words of the Lord to his chosen people, saying, you have forgotten our promise to one another. I can be a blessing to you if you will trust me first. Now for many of us, we're thinking, okay, so if I give away 10%, is he guaranteeing I'll give you back 10%? No, no. Some of God's blessings are to do with less, not with more. So there's no way I can be honest with you biblically and say that if you give to God with time or with treasures or with talents, that he's going to give it all right back to you and you'll never miss it. It's called a sacrifice for a reason. It ought to hurt a little bit. And so in the Old Testament, God says, when you choose Not to be generous in response to my generosity, I feel like you're ripping me off. Because I can't bless you, and you can't be a blessing. Notice the conditional nature of trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will straighten your path. See, honoring God was a sacrifice. Honoring God should be a sacrifice. And I think our God deserves a sacrifice. Jesus, for those of you still wondering, Jesus taught the tithe in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 23:23. 23, 23. He also does it in Matthew chapters 6 and 7 if you want to look. But in Matthew 23, he says to the Pharisees, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former.'" He's saying, listen, you can give me a tenth of your stuff, but if you don't give me your heart, that tenth is worth nothing. Remember, the tithe is always a matter of the heart, and to separate the heart from the checkbook is a mistake. That's not worship. God doesn't want our money. He doesn't want our time. He doesn't want our abilities. He wants us. He wants our heart. Well, the second thing we learn about this concept of sacrificing and trusting is a tithe must be based on gratitude. Psalm 116 says, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vow to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Do you notice what the psalmist just did there? I'm going to remember the goodness of God's salvation. I'm going to share it with others. And I'm going to keep my vow to trust the Lord at all times. And lastly, a tithe will require faith. Faith. You've probably heard every preacher you've ever sat under teach you this because it is an instrumental understanding of the blessing of God when in Malachi 3.10 it says, test me in this. And you've heard this over and over and over. Let's remind ourselves, the only time in all of Scripture that God gives us permission to put him to the test is with the tithe. He says, because he knows that this is going to be hard for us. He knows that for a bunch of different reasons we're going to get ourselves caught up in the world and we're going to be in debt and we're going to owe other men and women and we're going to feel pressure and we're going to wonder if we have enough and we're going to wonder will God be faithful and I'm going to tell you as a satisfied customer of God and I don't put myself up as any more example than this I have never missed a penny of my sacrificing for the kingdom because God has been so incredibly gracious to me oh I've missed the money but I've never done without I put on weight every year. I have a safe place to live. I have a wife who tolerates me and on occasion even loves me. I'm so hard to live with. God has been so good to me. How could I repay the Lord for his goodness? It's not by money, it's by trust. You see, the difference we make in the world will not be by our power, it will be by what the Holy Spirit does with our trust. So I seek the truth in relationship with God. I trust in the promises of God's faithfulness and I sacrifice based on the promises of my God. Psalm 20, verse seven says clearly, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I love the 13th Psalm. But I trust in your unfailing love, my heart rejoices in your salvation. You guys did so well when I asked you a couple of questions earlier. Let's try it one more time. Am I pressing my luck? Yeah, I am, okay, I'll try it anyway. Is our God faithful? Can our God be trusted even when we're scared to death? Is our God patient when we learn to trust him? Even though we're never perfect, when we step out step by step, moment by moment in trusting him, is our God pleased and excited that we're growing with him? Then that's the God we worship. That's the God we trust. And the challenge before all of us is, will we lean into him and not into our own abilities? Let's stand together. The return challenge is not, as I said earlier, a fundraiser. It's a faith builder for all of us. You see, the the vision that God's put in front of the elders and staff of this church is bigger than any one of us can take care of. I don't know anybody who could fund what we want to do. I don't know how it's sustainable alone. Carried the pressure for about four months of just, this is so big and this is hard because some people will walk away with the challenge and some people will embrace the challenge and we're trying to grow together and it's not about accomplishing something that we could promote one day. It's about what we do together. It's like Maggie talking about orphans and taking care of foster children. It's something that none of us can solve all the problem alone, but together we can make a significant difference. And so when we come to this time of this challenge, it's it has to be all of us. And so what we're really being challenged by is working together to do what all of us can do for something greater than any one of us can do. Uh, You were given in your booklet a card, and on November 17th, we're going to be collecting those cards as an act of worship. And my win, the win for me in all of this, is that every family and individual would take a card and pray through it and respond as God leads you, not as your church directs you, but as God leads you. Uh, They're going to put a picture of the card up on the screen for those of you who have never seen it. And I hope this isn't insulting, but we'd like to walk you through it to answer any questions that people might have about what that act is going to look like on November 17th. The very first line we're asking everybody to fill out is what you normally give to the church in a calendar year. Some of you are tithers, and you'll write in what your 10% is. Some of you give more than 10%, you'll write that in. And some of you have never given to a church before, and you're gonna look at that card and go, I can't fill that out. Yes, you can. Please understand. We're asking everyone to take one step of faith. From where you are, to draw closer to Jesus, one step. Some of you are gonna write in that first line, zero. There's no shame in that. Because you haven't developed the discipline. You're learning to trust, or you're just beginning to experience it. You're, you're trying to understand what that looks like. And so you're going to write a zero in that first line because you're going to say, I, I've never done this before. This is a step of faith. Because the second line is for those that want to give more than they normally give. And there's going to have to be a call of generosity. For us to do the six things that we have in front of us, it's going to take more than a very generous church is already giving. And this church is phenomenally generous. I, I, I mean that sincerely. It's not buttering you up. For us to be over budget and to be, to be as healthy as we are financially proves that God has created a group of generous people. But to go where we want to go, it's going to require more than we've ever received before and it's going to be a stretch for all of us. That second line, you'll fill out with what you want to do above and beyond. See, some of you may put a zero in the first line and actually write something in the second line and you will have taken a step of faith. Some of us will fill out the first line and put something in the second line and we will take a step of faith. You total that down to the third line and that's what you would expect to give in a year and carry it over times two to the second line or the fourth line and you have the amount that you believe by faith God's asking you to give. Now that fifth line is weird because there's some of you that have these things called savings accounts. I don't know what those are but I hear some of you have them. Some of you have what's called stored resources you've been successful in your business, you have some put aside, you have some possessions that you might want to liquidate or stocks you want to liquidate. Some people will not fill anything out in the second line, but they'll fill out the fifth line and say, I've got some things that I'm going to sell so that I can just give the proceeds of that because I want to see a church in South Joplin or I want to take care of the kids in a better way out here or I want to see missions go into all the world and do more than we're doing and you'll fill out that fifth line and then the sixth line is the total. And on November 17th, In an act of worship, every individual and family is going to bring that card and place that card before the Lord saying, God, with your help, I'd like to be able to do this over the next two years so that this church can make an eternal difference. Remember, some sit in the shade today because a generation that preceded them planted a tree. And we want to plant some trees. And so you might say, I don't even go to this church and pray for us. You say, I'm not sure this is my church yet. That's okay, pray for us. Because God's called us to do these things, and we think if we unlock these doors, He's going to do some amazing work. So we pray that you'll pick up a card at the table, and you'll respond with it. Next thing I want to share with you, some of you have heard me say this before, and it, it makes me a little awkward because I seldom can talk about this without getting choked up. Uh, when I preach every Sunday, I have a Brock cinnamon disc in my pocket. You really thought I was strange before, right? The reason I have this cinnamon disc in my pocket is when I was a little kid, and Especially when I got out of junior church, I would sit with my grandma and grandpa in church, which is one of the greatest memories of my life is to have a grandma and grandpa who went to church with us. And I'd sit with them in church, and my grandfather always wore a suit jacket, and he had a pocket full of Brock's candy. He didn't buy cheap stuff. He was a good man. My grandpa had a really ridiculous rule was whatever you pulled out of his pocket, you had to eat. And he would put those nasty uh, coconut things that are pink, white, and brown. Oh, and if you got one, he enjoyed watching you chew that nasty thing. So I became really adept at getting in his pocket and looking for a butterscotch or a cinnamon disc. Cinnamon was my favorite, butterscotch worked too. I always got a kick out of the fact that my grandmother gave him the stink eye because their four grandkids would be unwrapping candy in church, which I, maybe sent send me to hell. And, uh, but I would always grab the cinnamon disc and every now and then, it just happened to me, I don't know how long I've been doing it, a number of years though. When I reach in my pocket, as I often do to keep my hands from going crazy on stage, I feel this cinnamon disc and it reminds me of where I was when I was six, seven, or eight. To be at a place like this, to see the number of baptisms, to see the number of people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, I have no more right to be involved in this than I did to reach into my grandfather's pocket and grab that piece of candy. It was a blessing he made available to me I want to honor my grandfather for the rest of my life and my grandmother, wonderful people who helped my faith grow. For about six to eight weeks, I've been keeping this key in my pocket. This key reminds me, it's, I keep it every day. And I reach in my pocket every day to grab for a coin or my car keys and I feel this key and it reminds me I can be involved in unlocking some of these doors so that other people could have the blessings that I've had my entire life. Now around this room, At the front of this room here in the big worship center are four tables and the back are four tables. Over at the SMC, you have two tables at the front of the room. In just a few moments, we're gonna ask you if you want to. And it's gonna be chaos, which is awesome. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner at home. There's not enough room, but there's always enough food. Amen? And so this is gonna be awkward, but who cares, we're family. If you're interested in being challenged to walk by faith, this isn't a commitment, it's a reminder We'd ask you to come up and take a key from one of the tables and keep it on your person for the next two weeks. As a reminder that we should be praying, what is the next step the Lord wants me to take? Because for the last seven Sundays, I have a piece of my past and I have a piece of my future. And I'm excited about both of them. So as we sing this next song, feel free to come. Those of you in the front half, come to the front. Those of you in the back half, go to the back. You can pick one on the way out, but in an act of worship, let's pick up a reminder that our God is faithful and we want to walk by faith. Let's stand together.